from the authors of Author Masterminds. This is Mysterious. Mystery surrounds us every day. Join us and listen to true stories of mystery, from human behavior to nature and the physical environment to paranormal experiences. The stories are true, even if we can't explain them. How you doing? This is Steve Levi, the master of the impossible crime, and I'm here to give you a tale of mystery from the Alaska Gold Rush. And it centers on a real person, Wilson Meisner. And now, to the story. Alaska. It is the land of the gold rush where nuggets the size of goose eggs littered the ground, where men froze to death in search of the elusive yellow metal, and dance hall girls lured overnight millionaires into marriages. Honky-tonk pianos punctuated the howl of the north wind in communities that were half-tent and half-ramshackle collections of driftwood, whalebone, and packing cases. It was a time of whiskey and gold and long, lonely trails behind a dog sled. In truth, the Alaska Gold Rush was all of that. It was a riotous time with saints and scoundrels living side by side. In the cities, rugged men and women walked on planks set across streets so deep with mud that the horses could be swallowed whole. From the four corners of the earth, tourists still come to the Northland, believing that as they walk the streets of Juneau and Nome and Fairbanks, they may very well hear the ghostly honky-tonk of the saloon pianos echoing across more than a century, drawing them back to the wild and woolly days when the word Alaska set the imagination of the world ablaze. If you examine the map of Alaska, you will see a string of 300 islands extending west from the mainland. This archipelago stretches for 1,200 miles, about the same distance as from Los Angeles to Austin, Texas, and extends so far west it becomes east. That is, the last island on the Aleutians is Attu, the site of the bloodiest battle during the Second World War. And Attu is six degrees into the eastern hemisphere. Thus, Alaska is the most northern, western and eastern states of the United States. In a state of oddities, the Aleutians are an anomaly. The southern shore of the Aleutian Islands are swept by the Japanese current, the Kuroshio. It is this current that keeps the North Pacific ice free. But there is no complementary current on the northern side of the Aleutian Islands. There, the mantle of ice on the Bering Sea can be 15 feet thick and stops all marine traffic from mid-September to the beginning of June, every year. Because of the distance between the warm southern shores of the Aleutians and the ice-cold northern waters of the Bering Sea are so close, in some cases zero feet, the Aleutians have the worst weather in the world. Warm air from the south mixes with frigid winds from the north, making the weather patterns there that are not only unpredictable, but deadly. As Alaskans say, in the Aleutians there are no atmospheric patterns. Weather just arrives. The sky can be clear at 10 a.m. and be socked in at 10.05, and it can stay socked in for 10 days. Flying in the Aleutians is, under the best conditions, treacherous. There are few places to land, and like bear stories, every Alaskan who has flown in the Aleutians has a tale to make you want to stay in the big city. 
In Cold Bay, for instance, it is not unusual for a bush plane to crab to port on takeoff and then midway down the runway crab to starboard because there are two 50 mile an hour winds blowing 180 degrees from each other with the winds interfacing halfway down the runway. A favorite bush pilot expression is, every time I think about flying in the Aleutians, I don't. As Alaskan humorist Warren Sitka notes, in Alaska, wild animals, children, and weather in the Aleutians are all predictably unpredictable. Why is this important to understand the events in Wilson Meisner's life? Because Nome is 143 miles south of the Arctic Circle and is 736 air miles north of the Aleutians. Across the Bering Sea, which freezes with a mantle of ice 15 feet thick. Today, and during the Alaska Gold Rush, the last ship to leave Nome has to be out of the Bering Sea by about September 15th. After that, no ship can make it into Nome until the next June. During the Gold Rush, if you were in Nome on September 16th, you were there until the next June. And you'd better have money to make it through the winter. In Nome, during the Gold Rush, just before the last steamship of the season left, all of the derelicts, homeless, and destitute were round up and put aboard an outgoing steamer. This was called getting a blue ticket because the color of the Alaska Steamship Company tickets were blue. The Nome Rush was unusual for three reasons. First, you could arrive by steamship. To get to Nome, all you had to do was buy a ticket. There was no hiking involved. Because the Nome Harbor was so shallow, the Argonauts had to be lighter to shore. Second, while there were mines well back from the city, the bulk of the Argonauts were on the beach. The beach was federal property, so you could not stake a claim. But you could dig for gold on the sandy beach when the tide was low. So every 12 hours from June to September, like an army of ants, gold seekers swarmed onto the beach with pots, pans, cradles, frying pans, along with a wide range of gold extraction contraptions and separated the gold nuggets and flakes from tons and tons and tons of sand. But only from the sand where you were standing, an area which extended on all sides as far as your shovel could reach. Third, everything Nome needed had to come in by ship. Food, clothing, whiskey, medical supplies, horses, mules, tables, chairs, pipes, stools, anything. Further, Nome had no nearby forest, so all wood for homes and coal for heating had to come in by ship. Every year, about 10,000 tons of coal in burlap sacks were shipped into Nome during the Alaska Gold Rush. One of the most scandalous persons to be associated with the Nome Gold Rush was Wilson Meisner, a lovable scoundrel. Meisner was involved with gambling and prize fighting in Nome. It was also said he was probably the only man with a reputation of being able to borrow money from a lamppost. And it was also said that he was the only man who ever hired the Nome Brass Band on credit. In addition to these northern distinctions, in the course of Meisner's life, he was also a mining engineer, actor, playwright, a Fifth Avenue art dealer in New York, husband of the second richest woman in the world, proprietor of the legendary Brown Derby in Los Angeles, and with his brother, a founder and promoter of Boca Raton in Florida. In Nome, Meisner was known as the Yellow Kid. He earned this sobriquet by putting syrup in his hair when he worked as a bartender. In those days, whiskey was bought with gold dust. Meisner's fingers, sticky from the syrup in his hair, would pick up a few grains of gold dust every time he weighed out the gold for a drink. 
He would occasionally run his fingers through his hair, thus transferring those gold dust grains onto the strands of his hair. After his ship, he would shampoo his hair and pan for those flakes. Uh, let me take a short break. Mysterious podcasts are sponsored by Author Masterminds and Readers and Writers Book Club. We invite you to join the club. You can chat with Author Masterminds, you can read content pieces and serialized books, and you can buy books at 50% off the list price. Please check Mysterious Show Notes for links to the book club and Author Masterminds. In 1902, Meisner was involved in a badger game in which he played the damaged husbands. He drank too heavily the night before, and when he awoke late for his appointment to break in on the lovebirds, he discovered that his pistol had been stolen. Looking for a prop, he found a can of tomatoes. He stripped off the label. Thus armed, he crashed into the lover's nest with a threat to blow up the two lovers. The man paid for his life with a money belt, which yielded $10,000 in gold. That's $100,000 today. After the man fled in terror, Meisner's partner asked for her share of the boodle. Meisner handed her the tomato can. When she asked what good the can was going to do her, Meisner calmly said, It just got me $10,000. He was quite the character, and he once robbed a restaurant for chocolate for his girlfriend, Nellie the Pig, with the words, Your chocolate or your life. And he also grubstaked the future owner of Grauman's Chinese Theater in Los Angeles. Then it was the theft of $40,000 from the Canadian Gold Commissary Office in Dawson. Depending on the source, the thieves were either Scurvy Bill and Two-Tooth Mike, or Mitt, Half-Kid, and Two-Tooth Mike. Meisner listed himself as a deputy sheriff at the time, but he probably meant deputy United States Marshal. By his own admission, just after Meisner hid Scurvy Bill in his own attic, Meisner was called upon to join a posse to looking for the very criminal he had just hidden in his attic. The posse followed an alleged blood trail to a cabin where it was assumed that criminals were hiding. Meisner astonished the posse by rolling a cigarette in one hand and holding a revolver in the other. Then he advanced on the log cabin and kicked open the door. Uh, history does not record what happened to the bank robbers or, for that matter, what happened to the $40,000. After he left Alaska, Meisner ran a banana plantation in the Honduras, but his addiction to thievery got the better of him and he had to go to San Francisco to be a gambler and a con man. Then, broke, he went to New York to try his hand at playwriting. There he married Mary Adelaide Yerkes, possibly the richest widow in America. With her, Meisner now had the equivalent of $200 million in today's dollars and was living in a $100 million home. Not bad for a 29-year-old. The marriage did not last long. When his wife discovered what a con Meisner was, he was on the street again. Less than a year after he had been married, he was broke and single. So he returned to gambling this time on luxury liners between New York and London, until he was caught and banned from the industry. Thereafter, he managed the Rand Hotel in New York, where he showed his ability for writing and humor by posting such signs as, carry out your own dead and no opium smoking in the elevators. 
When his boxing enterprise in New York failed, Meisner joined his brother in Boca Raton, Florida in a massive land scheme. That predictably collapsed as well, and Wilson went on to Hollywood. Ever the con, Hollywood was the place where dreams are made. He wormed his way into the film industry with his friendship with Wyatt Earp. Meisner had met Earp in Nome, and in Hollywood, Earp was giving advice to young actors on how cowboys stood, spoke, carried their guns, and told wild tales of the shootout at the OK Corral. One of the young actors Earp befriended and taught how to speak like a cowboy was Marion Robert Morrison. Morrison soon changed his name to John Wayne, who, interestingly, did two movies on Nome's bank scam, both movies titled North to Alaska. Meisner was also one of the pallbearers for Wyatt Earp when the gunman died in January of 1929. In Hollywood, Meisner had a reputation as America's most fascinating outlaw, and Irving Berlin wrote a song about Meisner, The Black Sheep Has Come Back to the Fold. Meisner also wrote a dozen scripts for movies, some of which starred Betty Davis, Edward G. Robinson, and Mary Astor. Predictably, he was able to con his way up into the upper echelons of Hollywood, and he became partners with Jack Warner and Gloria Swanson in the world-famous Brown Derby, the restaurant where the movie greats gathered, drank, and caroused. Meisner died in 1933 and is best known for some of his quotes rather than his erratic life. Those quotes included, Be nice to people on the way up because you'll meet the same people on the way down. Never give a sucker an even break, which was picked up by W.C. Fields. And when you steal from one author, it's plagiarism. If you steal from many, it's called research. And to this day, no one knows what happened to the theft of the $40,000 from the Canadian Gold Commissioner's Office in Dawson. That's about $1 million in today's money, and it is doubtful Meisner saved a dime of it. But it's a good bet he had one heck of a good time with the money in Nome because he left broke. This is Steve Levi, the master of the impossible crime. And if you like the Alaska Gold Rush, you should see my books on authormasterminds.com and see the human face of the Alaska Gold Rush. And I will be back with you with other tales of the Alaska Gold Rush. Thank you very much to the Readers and Writers Book Club for making it possible for me to do this podcast.